welcome back to the Darkness Prevails podcast. This week I've got some very unsettling stories for you, featuring the things that lurk in caves, demons that enjoy tormenting people, and wilderness survival turned nightmare fuel. Enjoy these stories, and be sure to send us your scary stories at darkstories.org. We'd love to narrate some stories about monsters seen in Colorado. Be sure to check out EerieCast.com too, the home of my new horror-themed network. You can find this show there, as well as Freaky Folklore, a new podcast about monsters both mythical and modern. And soon, Dreadwood, an SCP or X-Files type of world, featuring my own monsters. To support the show, follow us on your favorite podcasting app and leave us an honest review on iTunes. Thank you. Now, let's begin. I had a demon attachment from Pink Pepper 78. I believe the house I grew up in is either a portal or a hub of spiritual activity, and growing up there was hell but I'd never experienced anything quite like this. I was a complicated pregnancy, and I nearly died many times in the first year of my life. This is relevant because my mother believes this is what started the activity in the home. Since one night, she woke up to a group of figures bending over my crib to watch me sleep. I grew up normal. Things happened, sure, but nothing serious or dangerous. I moved out of that house at 15 with my mom. We got an apartment in a different town. My sister, her kids, and my grandmother all still live in the home and still do to this day. A few years back, my sister was having a joint party for her kids as they were both born in September. At that point in my life, I hadn't been back in the house for longer than a few hours, ever since we left it. My sister's boyfriend at the time was showing me the work he did. He had finished the addition on our house that had been just bones since I was born, and had now been turned into a shop. He'd also added the foundation for a porch off the back, but it was just concrete and wooden beams so far, so they kept the door locked. That way, no kids would accidentally fall out the door. Anyway, he wanted to show me, but we needed the key to unlock the door. Yet it wasn't where it was usually hung up. We looked around for five minutes, but it was nowhere in sight. We even checked the floor, and I crawled behind the stairs because the addition was two floors. The second was not finished. Still, there was nothing. We were crouched next to each other. My sister's boyfriend then turns to tell me. He's gonna go ask if someone accidentally put it in their pocket or hid it from the kids. Just as he says that, the key drops out of nowhere onto the middle of the floor right between us. We both just looked at each other. He looks at me and says, She knows you're home. This may sound creepy, 
But there's this woman in a white dress that used to stand over my crib. She would even wake my mom up in the middle of the night, just before I started to fuss about something. He told me they hadn't seen her since I left, but for two days after this encounter, they could see her at night in the upstairs of the addition, rocking in a chair. I don't know why or what she was doing, but that's not even the bad bit. As the kids settled down into a pillow fort in the living room, falling asleep watching movies, the rest of us began to drink a little, watching the fire we'd built and telling our little ghostly experiences. My sister talks about how every once in a while she'll walk past the fridge, and everything on top of it just goes flying off and crashing to the ground behind or in front of her. It always just barely misses her. At around 1am, we finally go to bed. My sister tells me I can sleep in the kids' room since they were all passed out in the living room. The kids' room just so happens to be my old bedroom, and I had never had a bad experience in there before. But for some reason, that night, something decided to make itself known. So I went to bed in my nephew's race car bed. There was a small nightlight in the corner. But other than that, the room was pitch black. I was on my phone for a bit. Then, when I finally decided to go to sleep, I began to get this creep up my spine, like someone was in the room with me. My eyes shot open, and of course, there was no one there. I went to grab my phone, but it was dead, and everyone else in the house was asleep. I tried to settle back in, but as I turned the other way to face the chimney, which ran from the first floor through the second, and was probably about three feet wide, all stones and no bricks, I saw a massive shadow. It was from floor to ceiling, and was very clearly a person. It had shoulders and a head, but it didn't move. I tried to find the source of it, see if it was a toy or stuffed animal or a trick of the light, but the shadow remained. At this point, I started to freak out because the creepy feeling was back. I just stared at it, wide-eyed, and for a second I thought perhaps it was my grandfather who passed away before I was born, but I didn't get good vibes from this thing. Eventually, I realized I wouldn't sleep, so I found my niece and nephew's TV, which was tiny and hooked up to an old Xbox, and the only DVD in the room was Planes. Yeah, that movie like Cars, but with Planes. I watched it on repeat the entire night, and any time I dozed off, the movie would end, and I would be wide awake again, starting the movie over. I remember watching the time fly by on the little clock and the sun slowly beginning to rise. That shadow stayed the entire night and so did the terrible feeling. Eventually, I could hear my grandmother up and I ran downstairs telling her I wanted to go home. I didn't have a car at the time or else I would have been long gone. I felt drained, sick, I had a headache. I chalked it up to being hungover and went to sleep the minute I got home. 
For the next week, I felt off and on the verge of nausea. I'd randomly get these severe migraines that also made me nauseous. I threw up when I ate, and I just thought I got sick or something, because I am prone to stomach bugs. I thought nothing of it, and eventually everything was fine. I felt fine. But I had this feeling of someone watching me, everywhere I went. I didn't have that feeling in the house I lived in before, so this was odd. I met a guy online. After about a month of dating, he stayed over. In the middle of the night, I remember waking up. He was just lying in bed on his back, with his hand behind his head, staring at the bedroom door. I was like, what is it? Because I didn't know if my cat was out there or not. And he says, I've, I've been awake for a while. I... I feel like something is watching me. I immediately set up and stared at my door. So it isn't just me, is what I remember thinking. Then suddenly, I got dizzy and nauseous and felt like I was going to throw up. I curled up and tucked my head between my knees, trying to ground myself and stop the spinning. Then, without even thinking it, Without even realizing what I'd said, I spoke. He doesn't like you. My boyfriend turned towards me with wide eyes, obviously concerned and scared. I looked at him and was like, I don't know why I said that. I don't know what's happening. He just got up and shut the door tightly. Then we held each other. The vertigo and nausea continued. Then I was chanting in my head over and over, you're not welcome here, leave, very angrily. Soon the vertigo stopped, and the nausea slowly went away, but I had a bad headache. I said, I think it's okay now. My boyfriend then told me he kept envisioning us in a bubble of light, safe and protected, I haven't had any problems since. I still feel like I'm being watched. I don't know if it's our demon friend or another ghost, as the house we live in now does seem to be haunted. The stuff on the fridge still falls around my sister, so there must be something else trying to catch her attention, unless my demon friend went back to them. And despite my demons or ghosts, the guy I met online and I have been together for three years now so things are a little less scary. Haunted by Good Intentions from Itty Bitty Demon This all began in the summer of 2012. It was in the first apartment that my husband, Jason, and I lived in after we moved clear across the country from Honolulu, Hawaii to Northern Virginia roughly about an hour south of Washington, D.C. I was working in retail, a full-time student, made some friends, and had finally gotten past the culture shock of being on the East Coast. At the time, living in the unit below us was Amelia and Stacy. I knew Amelia from work, and we became fast friends shortly after Jason and I moved into the apartment. 
I never met Stacy and only saw her once or twice. Even to this day, even after what happened, I sadly still don't know anything about her. Now, on to the beginning of the actual story. Jason and I were relaxing by watching TV before I had to head into work around 4pm. Suddenly, we hear a persistent knocking sound coming from below us, and shortly after it began, the knocking turned significantly more aggressive. It was like someone was absolutely putting all their effort into pounding on a door or a wall. It was seriously loud enough and hard enough to shake the entire apartment. Then, there was an incredibly teeth-rattling boom, followed by silence. After a very pregnant pause, the screaming began. It was this gut-wrenching constant wail of despair that made my heart drop and my stomach clench. There was so much pain in the sound. At this point, Jason and I both knew that the sounds were coming from the downstairs apartment. We had tried to ignore it in the beginning, but that god-awful screaming was so hard to ignore. I was worried about Amelia, since she was a friend of mine, and I hoped she was okay. I figured I could ask her what all of that was about the next time I saw her. As I was leaving for work, there was a fire truck, an ambulance, and multiple cop cars outside of our building. I noticed Amelia in the parking lot, looking so lost and shell-shocked. After speaking with her, I learned that apparently, Amelia had not seen Stacy for a few days. She knew Stacy was home since her car was in the parking lot, and her bedroom door was closed and locked. That morning, Amelia knocked on Stacy's door to check on her, but did not receive a response. She did this periodically throughout the day, but still no response. This is when she became concerned. The knocking and pounding that we heard from our apartment was the police doing a welfare check on Stacy. The loud boom was them basically kicking her door down. The pain-filled wailing was Amelia discovering Stacy's dead body. I'm not sure how she died. I'm not sure if it was by natural, criminal, or self-induced means. All I know is Stacy had passed away and was locked in her room for the last few days. Several weeks later, Amelia had approached me and two other girls at work, asking if we could help her soon because she was moving out. She said she simply couldn't live in that unit anymore, that she was now afraid to be alone there. She also said that she had not been staying in her apartment for a while now. She said that the apartment was bad luck because someone had died there. She was so deeply disturbed to be there that she was willing to pay the penalties of breaking her lease even though she had renewed her lease shortly before Stacy passed. We three agreed to help. The date was set for next weekend. We would start Friday afternoon and work to get her packed up and all her stuff in the moving truck by Sunday night at the latest. The other girls, Cheryl and Donna, were already at Amelia's apartment by the time I arrived that next Friday. I was surprised to see a huge pile of trash bags lining an empty wall. She said that she was only keeping the things that she initially brought to the apartment, such as her clothes, accessories, shoes, bedding, and some kitchen appliances. Everything that was shared 
such as dishes, furniture, and just about everything else, was being thrown out. I was shocked. She was tossing about three quarters of the apartment, all the foods and spices included. I asked why she didn't want to sell or donate all the stuff, as some of the furniture looked brand new. She said she refused to take any of the bad luck with her, and she didn't wish it on anyone else. Therefore, it all needed to get dumped. Now, Amelia is from the Philippines, and I have relatives from the Philippines from my dad's side of the family. Much like a lot of other cultures, Filipinos can be deeply religious and very superstitious. Her logic was that if someone took some of that furniture from the dump, it wouldn't be on her conscience since she did not personally give it or sell it to anyone. We packed her things efficiently over the next couple of days, never once addressing the elephant in the room, Stacy's room. I peered into the room a few times as I walked by out of curiosity. The door was hanging off its hinges, the room was empty, and the single window opposite the door was wide open. On Sunday, Donna finally broke the silence and asked about the open window in Stacy's room. Amelia said that she was way too scared to go in there to close it. She began to fret about having to pay for the water damage to the wall below the window, as it had been raining on and off for the last few weeks. All the while, that window had been open. Stacy's family had come by to collect her things, but no one had thought to close the window. I shrugged and walked into the room to close the window myself, since Amelia, Donna, and Cheryl were too scared to do it. I noticed that inside the room was chilly, despite it being warm out that day. The vibe or energy in the room was so strange, heavy, and uncomfortable. As I said before, I'm part Filipino and I was born and raised in Hawaii. Both sides of my culture can be very superstitious. One of the beliefs is that if you're entering a place that doesn't feel right because of a presence of some sort, you should just apologize, tell whatever it is why you're there, and let whatever it is know that it's not allowed to bother you. Under my breath, I said, I'm so sorry for entering your space. I'm not here to intrude. I just want to close this window and I'll leave. You're not allowed to harm or follow me. I closed the window without difficulty and simply went about my business, finishing helping Amelia. Now, this is the point where things started going to complete and utter crap. We had been in Virginia and living there for a while without incident, but after helping Amelia move out of her apartment, Things in our apartment began to go so far left. I began to have debilitating migraines. The migraines were not new, however. I used to only have the throbbing head pain and light sensitivity. But now, I was unable to move without throwing up. Any type of sound or light would cause me physical pain. I would have light aura so bad that my peripheral vision would be completely blocked out, and nothing but sleep would help. This was a catch-22 for me, because whenever I did sleep, I would be plagued by horrible nightmares. This was not the normal, occasional nightmare, though. It was every single night. Nightmares so bad that I would be shaking and inconsolable. I woke up a lot in my nightmares, 
only for something messed up to happen, causing me to jolt awake again in the nightmare. Rinse, cycle, repeat. It often seemed so real that I sometimes couldn't tell if I was asleep or awake. My mental and physical health was taking a beating, and at the time, I had no idea why. Then the knocking sounds began, all hours of the day and night. From the walls, from the ceiling, from the floor, things would disappear and end up in places that made absolutely no sense. Jason's things would get misplaced so frequently that he started accusing me of moving them. He felt there was no way that he would place his car keys in the fridge, nor would he ever put his work-issued phone in the sink, especially since waterproof phones were not really a thing yet. Lights would turn on or off. The volume on the TV would suddenly jump to eardrum-destroying levels if you walked out of the room. Several times, the dishwasher would turn on, even though the door was not latched. There was one day that I was getting ready to do some laundry. I took a bunch of clothes hangers out of the closet and placed them on the bed before I walked out of the room to get the laundry out of the dryer. When I came back into the room, all the hangers were in the middle of the floor, just sitting there in three perfect stacks. Have you ever had clothing hangers fall off the bed and land in three perfect stacks? Because I sure as heck haven't. On another occasion, I had plans to clean the kitchen and walked into the kitchen to find the broom standing upright, as if playing sentinel or waiting for me. Sometimes when I took a shower, the shower curtain would pull open a few inches before closing again. Now, I understand that heat and steam can cause shower curtains to rise or sway a bit. However, this wasn't that. You could hear the rings sliding on the metal rod as it slid open halfway and then closed. Things like this happened to the both of us while we lived in the apartment. This isn't everything that happened while we lived there, but it was the most stressful for me. While it did stress me out, especially when I was home alone, Jason tried to be rational about it, saying things like, the noises are just the neighbors moving around in their apartments, or sounds can travel through the vents from one apartment to another, or the nightmares and migraines are from stress, or faulty wiring. The following is the last event I'll share here, even though much more has happened in that apartment. This was definitely the most terrifying for me. Now let me say that Jason is always worried for my safety. Even when I'm home, he worries. It's just in his protective nature, and I know for a fact that he would never do anything to jeopardize my safety. At this point in time, I was so terrified of being in the dark and of the nightmares that I couldn't sleep without Jason in the room. If he weren't with me, I would panic if I could not see the whole room. Anyway, Jason had to leave the house every day around 6am to get to work by 8am because of traffic on northbound I-95. I would usually still be in bed when he left for the day, and he would always turn on the light in our closet, leaving the closet door cracked for me, so that I would not freak out by waking up alone in the dark. It was mid-fall, and the temperatures would dip into the 40s. On this day, I woke up and almost had a panic attack, 
because I woke up in the dark. I immediately jumped out of bed and rushed to turn on the closet light. After taking a few minutes to calm myself, I frowned when I realized that our bedroom window was wide open. I closed it and checked my phone for the time. It read 5.50 a.m. Jason could still be home. With phone in hand, I opened the bedroom door and stepped into the short hallway, only to realize that every single light in the apartment was turned on. The guest bedroom, the hallway, the bathroom, the kitchen, and living room lights all turned on. And to my complete and utter horror, every single window, the balcony door, and the front door were all wide open. Jason would never do something like that to me. Our apartment was on the second floor, and the stairs were located directly in front of our door. That means if someone had come up those stairs with bad intentions, they would have had free reign to amble right up the stairs and straight into our apartment. I ran across the apartment, not caring about the stomping noises that I was making to close the front door. As soon as I closed the door, all the lights simultaneously shut off. I noped it out of there. Just me, my phone, and only wearing one of Jason's tall tees that I went to bed in. No shoes, no pants, no keys. I ran barefoot to the gym that was on the other side of the complex parking lot, where I sat and sighed and cried. I called Jason and hysterically told him what happened. He of course tried to console me, but I'd had it by that point. That was the absolute last straw for me. Needless to say, we did not live in that apartment much longer after the incident, just long enough to give the complex our 60 days notice and to find a new place. I also never stayed home alone after that if the sun wasn't up. I began to leave the house whenever Jason left. It did not matter if I had to sit in the parking lot until the sun came up. At night, I would go to work and hang around until Jason came home, even on my days off. Once we were out of that apartment, nothing ever happened again. Life went back to normal, but I've not really been the same ever since. I had told a close friend of mine about all these events, and he said that when I had spoken out loud in Stacy's room, it's possible that I didn't hold any conviction in my own words. Like, I said them, but I didn't really mean them. I have no idea if it was Stacy that was haunting me. Was her spirit lingering and followed me home? Was there something else in her room that was drawn to all the pain and suffering there because of Stacy's passing? and it just happened to latch on to me. Was it demonic? Was I experiencing a psychotic break and didn't realize it? I have no idea. I really and truly don't. All I know is that my path to hell began with the good intentions of wanting to help a friend by closing a freaking window. I lived in a haunted apartment. From Rosinator. This is a short story of one of the many events that took place in this building, but I still remember it clearly. 
Now, the building had shopping carts in the lobby to bring large loads of whatever to different floors. It had an old elevator, too. I was around 12 years old, and I remember being called down to the lobby by my mom to bring up a load of groceries she had ready to go on a shopping cart. I was to bring it up to our apartment on the fourth floor, unload the food, then bring the cart back down. Being a music lover, I had just downloaded more songs to my unlimited playlist on my MP3 player, which I was thankful to have. I decided it would be a good time to listen to my new music, too loud for my ears. I put on my slippers and walked down the long hallway leading to the elevators. Down in the lobby, I got the groceries sitting in the cart my mother had left. I went back up in the elevator and still had the music way too loud. I started walking down the hall leading back to the apartment when suddenly, I felt two hands grab my shoulders and shake me, like someone was deliberately trying to scare me or get my attention. I laughed thinking it was one of my cousins, so I whipped my head around to see nothing. No one was standing behind me. I took out my headphones and just stared blankly into an empty hallway. I almost ran back to the apartment, still pushing the shopping cart. I unloaded all the groceries and soon heard my mom coming back into the apartment. She reminded me that I now had to take the cart back to the ground floor. But I really didn't want to. This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the US. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living. And Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate, with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry while Steve, separately, researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, and I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Survivalist Running Scared from RoboGirl99 My brother during high school was obsessed with becoming a survivalist. He never missed an episode of Man vs. Wild. He had this big plan to go to the Boulder Outdoor Survival School after graduation, located in southern Utah. 
they offered a 28-day course on the wilderness survival experience. He turned 19 right after graduation, and as a gift for his birthday and graduation combined, our parents decided to pay for his tuition. He came home 20 pounds lighter and full of confidence. He said his experience had opened his eyes to a new world. Afterwards, he would plan regular survivalist trips on his own or with a friend when he had free time from school, as he had started college that fall. It was on one of these trips that he found that there were more things out there to survive than simply the elements and nature. My brother's name is Micah, and this is his story, from his point of view. I had asked my friend Zane to go on a three-day excursion, hiking up in Olympic National Park in Washington. It was mid-November and already going to be cold. We were on our fall break from school and were looking for some excitement. I took every chance I had to show off my survival skills to friends. I'd been on several weekend trips since school started. I tried to find a new destination every time, just to heighten the adventure. We left on a Friday afternoon just after our last class before break began. I would rather have started early. We were too excited to wait. It was a two-hour drive to the park, and by the time we got there, it was around 2 p.m. We unloaded our packs and headed out. The weather was misty and cold, but we were dressed for the occasion. We walked until maybe an hour before sunset, not getting but a couple of hours into the trip. We found a place under a giant spruce tree where we could quickly build a makeshift shelter. Now in this particular area, there was no camping allowed, so we had to get a little ways off of the trail to stay out of trouble. I had packed my basic survival backpack with everything we would need for a few days. Since Zane was a newbie, I went ahead and brought a few snacks and extra other things to ease his way into his first experience. After we finished with the shelter, I pulled out my flint fire starter and set to making a fire, which I should have done first because it was getting really dark. Luckily, I was getting pretty good at it, and I had it done pretty quick. We settled in and got warm around the fire, eating some snacks. We had got there too late to scavenge or hunt for food, but we'd have plenty of time for that the next day, so we decided to call it a night. We would just get an early start in the morning. Shortly after curling up in our sleeping bags, and just as we drifted off to sleep, we heard banging coming from a little deeper inside the forest. It startled us both, so we sat straight up. It sounded like someone banging tree limbs together or up against a tree. After listening for a bit, we decided it was probably a couple of elk bucks going at it over a female. I'd never actually heard that before, so it was just a guess. I'd never been scared to be out in the wilderness, so I never imagined anything unnatural. The weird thing was that it went on for hours, and surely that couldn't be normal. This didn't occur to me until the next day. So, completely at ease, we both bundled back up and went to sleep. I'm not sure what time it was, when we heard a noise so loud that we both came right out of our sleeping bags. The noise sounded like a bear 
but more of a howl. I knew that black bears were common here, but I'm pretty sure that's not what they sound like. We could tell at this point sunrise was maybe an hour away, so we waited a bit until light began slowly breaking through the trees and began to pack up. We made our way back to the main trail, then we were on our way. We didn't hear anything strange all day. We made it to what I believe was the Grey Wolf River. It was such a nice spot, and once again it was off the main trail a ways, so we decided to call it a day. We set to work making a new shelter, but wanted to wait on the fire until later, to not draw attention to our campsite. Fishing was next on the agenda, but we didn't even have time to get our gear ready, because things got pretty wild right about then. I was squatting down getting some things out of my pack, when something went flying over my head and splashed right into the water. I stood right up and looked at Zane. He was looking at me with a puzzled expression on his face. A few seconds later, another object flies past his head, only barely missing him. It looked like a rock, but who would be throwing rocks at us? Suddenly, we hear that same roar-like howl from the night before, but it was so much closer. I yelled in the direction of the sound, telling whoever it was they better knock it off. I lied and told them I had a gun and wasn't afraid to use it. That was followed by the sound of someone or something very large running through the woods around us, stopping just at the other end of our campsite. Now, I don't scare easily, but just as the running stopped, we caught wind of this stink that smelled like a skunk spray mixed with crap. It was totally quiet for a moment, and then the roar came again, closer than last time. We scanned the forest and our gaze froze on a figure too large to be a man. They were standing upright on two legs. It was either really muscular or covered in hair, or both. It was a little foggy, and that made it hard to see details. Our first instinct was to try and scare it away, whatever it was. So we started grabbing rocks or whatever we could find, throwing them in its direction, while yelling at the top of our lungs. I breathed a sigh of relief as it backed slowly into the forest, but strangely, it didn't seem to be startled by our threats. I'm not scared of things I understand, but this was different. I suddenly decided that it might be time to grab our things and get the heck out of there. We were packed up in what felt like seconds. We headed straight to the main trail, back the way we had came. It only took us five hours to get back out of the park, but for the first four hours, we could hear that thing following us, banging trees, making its threatening sounds. I refuse to give up on my love for the outdoors, and I'm still planning several survivalist adventures, but I will make sure I'm armed before I go back. If you're ever out there hiking the trails, you should probably make sure to stay on the trail and not venture off. After all, it may not be safe out there.
My Fortress of Safety Saved My Life From Captain Fallout 28 From the The Truth Is Here subreddit I like to think of myself as a professional survivalist because I've been researching and collecting things for a major crisis since I was a kid. I remember my 13th birthday. I asked my parents for an emergency survival bag. I got it too. It was a brown canvas backpack that came loaded with everything to last three days for four people. It also had a first aid kit, a fire starting source, and multiple light sources. Later on, I started adding tools to my collection and then a rainwater collection system. That was the beginning of a kind of lifestyle for me. I'm not paranoid exactly. It's more like a hobby that makes me feel secure. I have friends and family members who laugh at me and make jokes at my expense, but I know they'll come looking when the apocalypse happens, but most of them will not find me. I'm 28 now and a few years ago, I bought some land. I'd been looking for a while and finally found 12 acres with an old abandoned house that had a basement. I've spent most weekends since the purchase turning the basement into a fallout shelter. Take note that I do not give my name or location. Luckily, my wife is a fellow prepper too. We're kinda like Bert and Heather Gunner from the movie Trimmers, but a lot less uptight. That is one of my favorites, by the way. I could go on and on about the fortress of protection we've built together, but that isn't what this is about. So, back to the story. A few weeks ago, I began installing a ventilation system, one that keeps the air clean and breathable by cleaning the air that comes in from outside. I was really preoccupied with my work, so I didn't notice that I'd left the main entry door open, which I try not to do, so no one can hear me working or wander up on me and discover our location. I was drawn from my work by the sound of my wife's voice calling for me, which is when I realized I'd left the door open. I didn't even bother to check the security cameras, which was one of the first installs, because I recognized my wife's voice. I made my way to her, wondering what she was even doing here, as she was supposed to be working late tonight. I made my way upstairs, and while climbing, I heard her voice again. I walked through the shell of the old house out onto the front porch. I looked around, but I didn't see her or her jeep. I thought maybe I'd been hearing things, but just in case, I yelled her name a few times. When she didn't yell back, I decided just to be safe, I would walk a lap around the perimeter of the house. Just as I made my way back around to the front of the house, I caught a glimmer of something in the moonlight next to where the tree line ended by the field in front of the house. I was instantly on guard, worried that someone may have just discovered our secret fortress. I reached for my hip where I usually carry my pistol and suddenly remembered that in my hurry to get started, I'd forgotten it. I guess I would just have to talk my way through this one. I look back at whoever was out there and I yell, hello, asking who's there. It was just silence, until I realized 
It wasn't a someone, but a something. When it snorted, and a small cloud of steam rose up into the moonlight. A second later, it took a step forward, and the moonlight caught its eyes the way headlights catch a deer or cats. Its eyes were a glowing yellow, and what I thought might have been branches from a tree turned out to be horns, not antlers, but more like what you would see on the head of a steer. I was starting to take note of several other things, it was unusually tall. From that distance, I'm not sure, but maybe two feet taller than myself, and I stand six foot even. Last, I took note that what I had assumed was a coat was the hair covering this thing's body. I would have gotten more detail, but this thing took another step and dropped down on all fours and headed straight for me. I ran like I have never run before, back into the house and to the shelter entrance, almost falling down the stairs while trying to lock the door behind me. I barely had the door secured when something amazingly strong and heavy began banging on it. I was scared for a minute that it would cave the door in. I shouldn't have doubted that though, because I put that door there and I made it to withstand just about anything. After what seemed like an eternity, but was only maybe a minute, this thing finally stopped, and it got quiet. I remembered my security cameras then, and I decided to go look and see if it would catch anything. Would you believe that I actually watched this thing walk right on out the front door, but the camera doesn't have a recorder, so I know what I'm installing next. I'm not sure what it was, but I am sure that it wasn't my imagination. And I'm also sure that it left huge scrapes and a few dents on the shelter door. One other thing that I'm sure of is that I have no doubts that my fortress of safety saved my life once and may very well save it again. So, you want to be a YouTuber? From Country 1989. I bring you this story of an event that changed mine and my friend's view of the woods. It happened years ago. We were interested in survivalist nature. You know, man versus nature. See how to survive in unseen situations. Here's a quick rundown of the gang. Mike is a VA therapist, and Tessa, his dog, is the cure to his magical treatment upon numerous returning war vets, which is how we both met. I'm a double-tour Afghan Marine vet myself. As for Butch, he's a unique character. He's five foot two, Italian, and highlights everyone's day with how he used to be a powerlifter, but he never made it out of his mother's basement. On to the story. We all planned a location and gathered our gear. We had originally planned going up north in Michigan. I mean, way up north. But funny enough, Butch's mom needed him back in a few days to help her set up bingo. So we decided the west side of Cadillac, Michigan would do. We replanned our route and made our way. Once we arrived, we knew it was pretty late 
we were going to need to hike in before it turned full blackout, so we bagged up our gear and hit the trail. I noticed along the way Mike kept having to nudge Tessa to quit getting so close to him. She was kind of acting like she was scared of something. I shrugged it off, mostly because Tessa was a retired war dog. Allegedly, she came from the 101st Airborne, and from what I was told, had two confirmed takedowns, but I'm not sure how much of that is true. So we figured maybe she was in a clingy mood. We reached a good location to bed down for the night. We set up camp and began foraging for wood and other supplies. Butch was the mule and carried a majority of the gear, so I stayed and helped him. Mike and Tessa went on looking for dead wood. Butch and I set up and talked a bit about what we wanted to shoot the next day. Butch jokingly said, Dig me a foxhole and I'll sleep in it. I laughed, like he had ever slept in one in the first place, I thought. It was starting to get dark out when Mike got back with the firewood. He looked annoyed and extremely agitated. We asked him what took so long. He said with a huff, It was Tessa. Halfway out, she would nudge him every time he bent over to get a piece of wood, or she would randomly start growling at the brush or trees. Butch asked if there was anything weird out there, but Mike answered with a no. There was absolutely nothing he could see that was out of the ordinary. I looked over at Tessa. She was sitting next to Mike, constantly looking back at the dark woods, sometimes moving her head only to look at Mike. Once again, I didn't pay much more mind to her. We had dinner cooking in the pot, and were just gabbing about ideas and dirty jokes and whatnot. We finished dinner shortly after, so we began to wind down for the night. Once again, I looked over at Tessa. I noticed she was looking in the same spot as before, not to mention she didn't even touch her food yet. Weird, I thought. Suddenly, she got up and was looking at something I couldn't see. For me, it was just too dark, but she was following something with her head. Unexpectedly, a tree came falling down and landed perfectly in place on the fire we had built. We all sprung up to our feet, in confusion and panic for a moment about what happened. Luckily, Mike and I both have rifles and Butch has, well, pepper spray. Butch isn't a big gun fan. We watched in that direction of the woods, expecting something to come forward, but it didn't. We then heard a loud and deep yelp from the east, and one more from the north of us. Then in an instant, something grabbed hold of the tent and dragged it away into the woods. All we saw was a massive blur in the dying firelight. Then the other tent was ripped and dragged off too, and yet somehow we still hadn't seen who or what was doing this. While this is going on, the yelps and yelling are continuing in the woods around us, until it all stops. Off in the distance, we saw three tall figures break the tree line. They casually came closer to us, but never drew close enough to the fire as if they were scared of it, or they didn't want to be seen, 
Then again, there wasn't much fire left burning at this point. Whoever they were, they were tall, massively muscular, and each one had a different color in its eyes. One was blue, another red, and the last had a glow of orange. Then, they all roared at us at once. We were so horrified, we ran back to the truck. We made it back in one piece and got in. Mike fired it up and flipped on the headlights. I kid you not, we saw three of the things five feet from the front of the truck. One of them covered its eyes with its arms to shield them from the light. The others yelped and roared. These definitely weren't people. They were creatures covered in reddish-brown fur, each one nearing eight feet tall. Mike floored it in reverse, and we made it out of there, silent and shocked all the way back. In the end, our survivalist YouTube career futures retired immediately. At least for a while, I did not want to go back out there. The Hansel Road Survival from Silver Bullet 54 The outdoors is a place to test man against nature. You have troopers who call themselves survivalists. They'll boast that they've seen everything. However, I highly doubt they'll admit to seeing something they can't explain. A creepy roadside encounter makes this fact all the more chilling. In 2016, my best friend Grant had a cousin visiting from out of state. His cousin, Bradley, was a so-called survival expert. He always regaled Grant with stories about his fallout shelter, underground bunker, and safe house in the case of the collapse of civilization. He also tried to impress me by retelling a story that I believe is fabricated, as it involves escaping a pack of wolves in Colorado. One day, I heard him and figured he was retelling another farce until I heard the phrase, Woods of Hansel Road. I walked over and said, You've been to Hansel Road in Doylestown? Near Sawmill Run. He nodded smugly and said, I stared down the red lights of the ghost. Grant's glance told me that, like Bradley and I, he knew the legend of the road. Can you take us there? A girl named Carly asked him. No, girls get scared easily, but I'll take Grant and Justin. He said we would do a three-day survival journey. We had sleeping bags, food, drinks, and some other miscellaneous items. As he drove, Grant told us all about the lights of Hansel Road. Plenty have seen them, but no one knows who or what it really is. Even a Pennsylvanian like myself didn't have a guess. Bradley said it was eyes, red eyes that belonged to a demon. My own previous experience with what I think was a demon in New York made me really hope it wasn't one. Grant postulated it was some kind of wild animal or spirit. Again, I didn't know what to think but I was intrigued. When we stopped, we saw that there was a power outage. Great, 
The Lights Aid Company, Bradley said. We camped out in the pickup truck Grant had driven over in. Bradley had the back seat while Grant and I were in the truck's bed. Nothing happened at first, but soon enough, something very creepy occurred and ended up being a double whammy. On day three, Grant asked me if I had been awakened the previous night at 4 a.m. I told him I slept like a log. When he said that was bad, I asked why. I saw the lights, he whispered. Red? I asked. Red and green, he replied. Maybe as tall as Brad. Brad was about six feet tall and I don't even reach five foot eight, so hearing that freaked me out. What should we do? Brad asked when he heard us discussing the lights. Maybe we should cut it and run, I suggested. Bradley shook his head and said, okay, now let's get an answer from someone who isn't a wimp. Grant added, maybe we could try to fight back. A man happened to drive by with his window down and replied, Fight the lights of this road. Good luck. I've seen them before. It ain't corporeal. That night, Grant and I were in the back seat and Bradley was in the bed. At midnight, he let out a shout and dove into the truck. Bradley was pale and trembling and told us, Get me out of here. The lights? I asked. Worse. When we got back, Bradley handed us a small piece of paper he said he found sitting in the bed of the truck. It had just four words on it. You can't kill this. Bradley continues to do survival challenges in other states, but he admitted that one thing he'll never survive is another night on Hansel Road. The JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusion supply. See store or jcp.com for details. Cave Dweller from Darth Monger. Last year, my family and I went camping and hiking. It was a week during the late part of April. My dad always enjoyed getting out in the spring. He also says it gets me and my older sister off the cell phones and computers for a bit. We reluctantly went and tried not to fuss too much. Even though I'd much rather be playing PS4 with my friends, if pretending to be excited about walking on some rocks was what it took to keep from hurting his feelings, then so be it. As we prepared for the trip the first morning, Dad and I loaded the truck up with tents, an ice chest, and the other necessary implements for camping. All the while, my mom and sister were arguing over how much to pack for the trip. Thank God my mom won out, because it would have been me having to pack everything into an already overloaded truck. 
We finally got everything strapped down and started down the road. Our destination was only a few hours away, so it wouldn't be long until we were in a boring, supposed heaven. The trip was pretty uneventful. My dad told stories about past trips from when my sister and I were little, and my mom laughed while adding in her own little parts. My sister, being 16 at the time, sulked from her lack of a phone or any other form of entertainment, and I stared out the window watching trees pass by. Apparently, we were going to a new place that Dad had wanted to try for a long time. He didn't know much about it, but a work friend had said it was great. I was hoping it would be more fun than the trips before. Like Mom said, you never know. You might just have fun. Once we arrived at the place, it seemed pretty dead. There was a small playground that looked as though it had been built 40 years ago. The public restroom buildings were run down and didn't seem to be cared for much at all. There was a decent-sized lake in the distance, though, but it too appeared to be empty. For the moment, it seemed like at least, if nothing else, we wouldn't have to share with many people. Dad and I found a good spot and began setting up the tent. He let me pick the spot, so I chose a spot close to the lake. I was hoping to get some fishing in at some point. My mom and sister began putting out the chairs and unloading the truck. By the time we were finished setting up, it was getting a little later in the evening. My dad suggested we go check out the lake, maybe even cast a line in the water. I was more than thrilled to end the day doing something outside I found somewhat entertaining. My mom volunteered herself and my sister to stay and start building a campfire, so it would just be me and my dad. The fishing wasn't great, but I enjoyed it anyway. We did finally see a boat out there, and there were a few other people standing around the shore. It made me a little less nervous. The feeling of us being all alone there was kind of creepy. Later on, we finally made our way back to the campsite. The fire was going, and my mom and sister were sitting in lawn chairs by it. My mom offered us turkey sandwiches. Soon after that, we were off to bed. That night... I couldn't sleep much, because it was so quiet I could hear every little noise, the crackling of leaves and the rustling of bushes. My 13-year-old mind just knew there was something waiting for me to go to sleep. The next morning, I awoke to my dad yelling, Wake up, you lazy good-for-nothings. Let's go. I noticed he had his hiking boots on, so I knew we were in for it. He wanted to try a five-mile trail that had streams, cliffs, and hills. A lot of nature to see, as he had put it. We got started, and there were some cool things to see. Huge gaps in the rocks that seemed to be bottomless and a few small waterfalls. As noon approached, the sky was overcast, and it started to get really humid. I was sweating, and I had already drank four bottles of my water. We decided to take a rest, and about the time we were getting settled in, some other hikers appeared behind us. It was a man and a woman and a teenage boy around my age. My dad quickly sparked up a conversation. 
Soon he and my mom were talking away with them. The other boy introduced himself and I found out his name was Adam. Adam was 14 and his parents had dragged him out for some fresh air. Apparently, they didn't live far away and he had hiked on this trail many times before. Finally tired of waiting on his parents, he asked if he could take me to see the caves. My dad asked if it was safe and Adam's dad assured him it was and it wasn't too far away. We began to make our way off the trail up a large hill and into some thick trees. On the way, Adam told me that he had been playing at these caves for a few years. He and his older cousins discovered them while on a small camping trip. People weren't allowed to go in them anymore because of young people getting lost and search and rescue having to go find them. Once we arrived, it was actually pretty creepy looking. Brush had grown up in front of the main cave, and it wasn't as large of an opening as I had imagined. He said there were more, but this one was the most interesting, because for some reason, it was so cold when you stood in front of it. He took a rock and threw it in. It made a large echo in the distance. That was obviously the other really cool part to me. So, of course, we kept throwing rocks in and yelling enjoying all the crazy echoes we were making. Nearby, we found an old rusted bike frame with a bicycle bell still attached to the handlebars. Adam popped it off and threw that in as well. Naturally, it wasn't long before I asked if he had ever actually went inside the cave. He said that he hadn't, and that, honestly, it was just a little too sketchy for him. He didn't like the dark or enclosed spaces. But I really just wanted a peek, just to see what was inside. I asked if he would stand outside the cave and wait if I went in for a minute. He nervously said he wasn't sure if it was safe, but I assured him I would be careful and I wouldn't go very far. He finally agreed after a few minutes of trying to advise me not to. I grabbed my small flashlight from my bag and started in carefully. I had to slouch down to get through the opening. Once just inside, I found he was right about the cold. The temperature had dropped at least 15 degrees. I looked around and noticed the cave actually opened up a few yards inside. My flashlight was less than high quality, so it was kind of hard to make things out at first. I figured I would let my eyes adjust for a minute. I made my way to the larger opening where I could stand up. I could see a little better, so I slowly started making my way further into the cave. Adam began yelling, asking what I could see. I responded with, Nothing, Nothing yet. yet! As I kept walking, I came to a spot with a large shelf that was in the middle of the path. It was about five feet high. I'm not sure why, but I really wanted to see what was on the other side. So I grabbed the edge and began finding footholds to climb up. Once on top, the path got really low and narrow. Adam started yelling that we should be getting back. I told him just another minute as I got down and began to crawl through the small space. I'd been crawling for a few minutes when I started to get a little scared. 
It had gotten really cold. It felt like the air was getting thin. I realized the space was too small and I could not turn around. I crawled just a little further and finally there was another opening. I stood up and stretched. I was about to crawl back through when I could have sworn. I heard a small whisper. I used my flashlight and looked around quickly, but I had stirred up so much dust getting up. The lighting was so poor too, I could barely make anything out. It was about that time I felt something brush lightly up my shoulder. I broke out in goosebumps. It was time to get out of there. I got down on all fours and began trying to climb back down the tunnel. My backpack got hooked on a sharp rock and I was freaking out so bad, pulling it so fast it wouldn't come undone. That's when I heard a ring ring. I couldn't promise it, but I was almost sure it sounded like a bicycle bell. I let go of the backpack and began to crawl. I was moving so fast, so tensely, it made getting through the narrow passage feel like walking through quicksand. I was losing my breath and had to slow down. As I caught my breath, just as I was about to relax, I felt a cold hand grip my ankle. It felt like, for a second, something tried to pull me back. This gave me new energy to escape that tunnel. Once I got to the ledge of the shelf, I couldn't find a quick way down. I turned around and began to dangle my feet over the edge. As I looked up, my flashlight in my right hand pointed forward because I was holding onto it and the ledge too. About ten feet down in the tunnel, I saw what looked to be a face. It was pale, clammy. The figure had long, dark hair and the face was grimaced, like someone who had died in agony. The small light from my flashlight glared off of its teeth. I let go and fell, landing on my back. The wind was knocked out of me. I jumped and ran to the entrance with tears in my eyes. As I came out, Adam was standing with our parents, who had just began questioning about my whereabouts. My dad saw my face and grabbed me, asking what happened, asking if I was okay. I didn't want everyone to laugh at me, so I began telling them that I got lost and I had fallen. After telling me how stupid I was, my parents took me back to camp to assess my injuries. Deciding that I just had some bumps and scrapes, they kind of calmed down. After that, I begged to go home because I could not stay the night there knowing what was in that cave. Seeing that horrible face, it had traumatized me. After my begging, they finally gave in and took me home. I'm not sure if what I saw was real or not. I'd like to believe it was just my imagination. Bad lighting, a scared kid, but I can't get that grimaced, dead-looking face 
out of my head. I don't do tight spaces anymore, and cave dwellers can have their caves all for themselves. Cave in the Woods From Laughing Jack I'm 22 going on 23 years old now, and this happened when I was 6 or 7, living with my birth mother and her mother, which would be my nana. It was the middle of June, and it was a hot summer day in West Virginia. I lived in the mountains where our backyard was a forest. Me and my four brothers, two older and two younger, would go hiking in the woods behind our house all the time to pass the time. On this particular day, it was about 97 degrees Fahrenheit out and sunny as we trekked through the woods. After about 30 minutes of hiking, we came across this cave. It was the most peculiar cave, because in the opening, there seemed to be a pillar of ice, despite the extreme temperatures. As my brothers approached it, trying to figure out how it didn't melt, I noticed the woods got silent. I was a bit of a wuss back then. I got scared easily. My two older brothers often picked on me for this. Well, I told them that I was wanting to go back home, and they told me to go back by myself if I was so scared. So being the stubborn kid I was, I did just that. As I was walking back home, I saw what appeared to be a deer off to my left. When I looked over, it was a doe, but it was a doe unlike any other I'd ever seen. This doe stood seven feet tall on all fours. The only place I'd ever seen an animal so big was a zoo. So being the scared little boy I was, I ran back home and cried in my room until my mother came in and calmed me down. Eventually, I passed out. The following night, I woke up to a horrifying and confusing sight. I rolled onto my back in bed and looked out the window. And there I saw eyes. Immediately I knew I'd seen those eyes before, but then I really grasped what I was looking at. That massive seven-foot doe was standing by my window, looking in at me in my bed, expressionless, emotionless. I ran terrified into my big brother's room, sleeping on the floor because his room didn't have a window. I never ventured back into that forest after that, and I can't help but think that wasn't a normal doe, and that perhaps that icy pillar had been a distraction to get me alone. Disembodied Noises at the Ape Caves, Mount St. Helens from Nordic Nonsense. I like to go spelunking. It's one of my favorite hobbies and I live for the adventure. Me and my friend Josh decided to go up to the ape caves outside of St. Helens and go walking around and explore the old lava tubes. For those who don't know what a lava tube is, it's a super long, one single tunnel that was created when lava came down through the underground super quick. They were formed thousands of years ago, and it's always a blast to go and crawl through them 
trying to find your way through. Some parts do get really sketchy, because you have to duck, climb, and basically be a spider monkey through. But I digress. So we went up pretty late in the season. We're talking mid-November, early December. This was back in 2014, so the details are a little sketch. It was pretty late when we got there and we were the only car in the parking lot. We gathered our gear and headed down the trail to the actual mouth of the caves. The air was super heavy and humid in the cave, and as we walked through, our footsteps were the only thing you could hear. Josh also brought his dog along, and it happily plodded along right next to us. We were about an hour into our expedition, when Josh suggested we turn our lights off to see just how dark it actually is. The lights go out, and we stand there in silence. It's moments like those that really just remind you how vulnerable you are. I would not want to be here by myself. That's when I could hear the deep rumble of a growl in Josh's dog's chest. Josh quickly switched his light back on, and in the distance, we could hear someone talking. It wasn't loud, just enough to get our attention. Savage, the name of Josh's dog, starts barking like mad, and he tries to shut her up. Chills are racing up and down my body as we quickly turn back and head the other way. The entire way out, I could swear I heard footsteps that weren't our own, as if a third person had joined our party. Every now and then, you could hear the same voice, talking and laughing. <laughs> but this wasn't a sane laugh. There was madness in it, that mocking high-pitched mirth. We got the heck out of there, and by the time we got back to the parking lot, we were both panting heavily and covered in sweat. We didn't talk about that experience for the rest of the car ride home. Now, I love spelunking and exploring, but not when I gotta do it with spirits. <laughs> 